Welcome to the From Is to Hop podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lewis. For this, our inaugural episode, we're going to take a look at one of the most controversial and consequential areas of social science research today. Not only does this research shape public policy and discourse, it's been cited thousands of times in the academic literature, constitutes tens of millions of dollars of corporate and municipal budgets, is frequently and prominently referenced in the news media, and has been the subject of several best-selling books. However, perhaps most notable of all is the relatively weak scientific standing of this research stream. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the implicit association test. Before we get started, I feel like I owe you an explanation for why I chose this topic for the first episode. You see, I was motivated by a conversation I never got to have. It's with a person I care about and whose intellect and perspective I did and still do admire. This individual had characterized the United States as systemically racist and stained with white privilege following the riots and protests in the summer of 2020. I was curious what led her to these conclusions, so I contacted her privately and was told that I should take a look at implicit bias research. Though we never had the conversation we planned, I hope this podcast can stand in for that discussion. You see, I still think highly of this person, and I think like all people of goodwill, racism is abhorrent, and agree its effects are stains on the history of the United States, as well as many other nations. I am, however, interested in what's true. My background in data analytics has made me peripherally familiar with the implicit association test already. This is the specific test of implicit bias to which the individual referred. This test has many versions, and it's quite popular among social psychologists. Specifically, the versions claiming to measure racial and or ethnic bias have been quite popular in the mainstream press. Perhaps you've seen some of the stories or had to sit through a so-called implicit bias seminar before. To give a little context, this test is typically administered by showing a computer-generated white or black face. There are other racial groups as well. As you're shown this face, you're asked to strike certain keys on your keyboard to associate either a positive or a negative word with that face. What the researchers then do, because this task is executed very quickly and over the course of several rounds, is they aggregate your data and look at the difference in how long it takes you to respond to associate positive words with an in-group or, or, for example, a white face as opposed to a black face. This difference in response latencies is taken to be reflective of some underlying implicit bias. So what I thought we would do today is investigate several aspects of implicit bias research, primarily by examining the psychometric properties of these versions of the implicit association test, which I'll refer to as IAT going forward. The psychometric properties give us a feel for how credible the science is in this space. Researchers using the IAT claim to be measuring something they call implicit bias, which we think about as a scientific construct. In plain English, what this means is it's a concept we seek to understand and measure. Perhaps a straightforward example from the natural sciences will help here. We can think about age. Chronologically, that's pretty much defined since the time that has passed since your birth. However, there's another type of age that scientists talk about sometimes, and this is biological age. Biological age corresponds roughly to how well your cells function physiologically. So they might measure mitochondrial or cellular function for you. 
For our purposes, it's important to note that whether you're measuring chronological age with a calendar or biological age with some sort of assay, that both of these measures have two characteristics that lend themselves to being scientifically credible. They are reliable, meaning they're consistent, and they're valid, meaning they correspond with the phenomenon of study, with the topic of interest, namely chronological or biological age. It's pretty straightforward to see why those properties are important if you're going to claim to be measuring something. So, we will focus on these and a few other aspects when we talk about implicit bias research to help us get a better feel for the state of the actual scientific evidence. And for the record, there will be an episode artifact, that is, a document with all the scientific sources for this episode's podcast, linked in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get started. The first thing to note is that there are a couple of theories that led to investigations in this area to begin with. The first is a dual model of attitudes. What this means is that people are affected both by automatically processed as well as cognitively processed attitudes and beliefs. In plain English, this means something like, we have beliefs of which we are aware and some that we are not, but that both affect real-world behaviors. The second research area that led to curiosity about implicit bias deals with stereotyping. Specifically, the interest was in, can implicit bias, if it exists, explain how people project incomplete, inaccurate, or imprecise information onto individuals of different groups? So, in the late 90s, when the implicit association test was developed, these were reasonable streams of inquiry. Now, it happens to be the case that the dual attitudinal model seems to not hold up very well when faced with real-world data, meaning that it is unclear and perhaps incorrect to say that these two levels of attitude affect real-world behavior. That's not to say we don't subconsciously process most of the information we encounter. However, it seems that we have cognitive access to most of our attitudes, at least how it pertains to how we interact with and think of other people. Similarly, studying stereotyping in scientific settings has been difficult because contextual and situational factors can either exaggerate or diminish the actual role stereotyping plays in an interaction. Nevertheless, let's examine the psychometric properties we discussed earlier. There are two forms of reliability. Again, think about reliability as the consistency of measurement results. The first aspect I want to talk about is inter-rater reliability. This is, if I ask you and your friend to both rate something, what is the extent to which your ratings correspond with one another? This is not something like preference, your preference as opposed to your friend's preference. It's if I ask you to rate the quality of an interaction between two people and ask your friend to do the same, your assessment of the quality should correspond with each other in order to give us confidence that you're both assessing the same thing. How much correspondence is needed? Typically, the bare minimum is 60%, and we measure this with correlations. And most of what we're going to talk about today is different versions of correlations. So you can just think about how well your two measurements are associated with each other. Now, when we're not doing exploratory research, but we're attempting to explain things, the bar is typically raised from 0.6, so that's the 60%, to a level of at least 0.7, though the most credible research standards are 0.9 or higher. And I think it's obvious why that's the case. So, when we look at a study from 2001 that is among the most touted results in implicit bias research, because it claims to be the first that maps implicit bias onto observable behaviors, 
issues with inter-rater reliability begin to emerge. What happened was in 2009, a group of researchers reanalyzed that data, and what they found was that the inter-rater reliability for three-quarters of the behaviors they measured, that's 12 out of the 16, failed to reach the threshold of 0.65 or 65%. Many of them were much, much lower than that. Nevertheless, the original authors had claimed these reliabilities were, quote, good. That is certainly not the case. Nevertheless, these ratings, again, between two raters, were treated as if they were reliable for the purposes of trying to correlate the behaviors with implicit bias. So it may not surprise you to learn that there were other issues with this study, but once these issues were corrected for in the 2009 reanalysis, the net result was that there was a flip. In the original paper, the researchers claimed that 90% of the experimental subjects exhibited anti-black bias behavior. Again, keep in mind that those behavior ratings were not reliable. However, when the appropriate adjustments were made in the 2009 reanalysis, that flipped. It turned out that 70% of the experimental subjects exhibited a pro-black bias. Now, some may say, well, this is a cherry-picked result. However, it's not, for two reasons. One... It was the first study to lay major claim linking implicit bias to behaviors. And two, it was widely touted, and it was not until almost a decade later when the data were reanalyzed that these fatal flaws were discovered. Nevertheless, let's move on to another form of reliability. This one is called test-retest reliability. This can be thought about as, if I were to measure your height with a tape measurer today and tomorrow, there should be a good correlation between those two measurements. If not, that might tell you something about the quality of my tape measure. So what are the baseline standards for test-retest reliability? Greater than 0.7 is typically considered the baseline measure. 0.8 is a stricter threshold, and obviously, the greater the number, the more confidence you have in the consistency of the measurement. So here I want to refer to something that we'll reference a couple times, and this is a four-paper back-and-forth series between some of the founders and major proponents of implicit bias research using the IAT, and some of its major critics. These are two competing meta-analyses. Those are studies that aggregate together past study findings and analyze the data comprehensively to try and get a lay of the land. Two additional commentaries are also part of this four-paper series. Now, all of those are linked in the episode artifact I mentioned earlier. What I will present is what I believe to be the objective net results from this multi-paper series. Regarding the test-retest reliability of the race IET, Estimates put it between 0.45 and 0.56, both quite off from our 0.7 mark. And if you ask experts who themselves are proponents of this type of research what the expected test-retest reliability will be, estimates range from 0.4 to 0.5. So this does not imbue us with a ton of confidence about the test-retest reliability of the race IAT. However, one caveat here is that a 2021 paper suggests that the portion of implicit bias that these tests do capture is relatively stable over weeks and months. So if I were to measure your so-called implicit bias using the IAT uh, today and then one month from now, perhaps the portion of implicit racial bias that it does capture is stable. Now you might ask, how could this be the case? Well, in the situation where you have a very noisy measure, meaning it does not precisely and narrowly capture the concept you're interested in, in this case implicit bias, it's also capturing a lot of other things. These could be things like true statistical noise, they could be things like your explicit attitudes, which remember, 
were supposed to be distinct from your implicit attitudes. So, given that the test-retest reliability is quite low, but that there might also be a smaller stable signal, how large is that signal relative to the other things this measure might be capturing? Well, the answer is, it seems to be about 20%. So there's four times the amount, 80 compared to 20, of things that are not implicit racial attitudes embedded in the measure of implicit racial attitudes. This is a problem. This is a problem for the validity of our measurement instrument. But we'll get to that in one second. I want to say one more thing about measurement error. When researchers attempt to correlate people's so-called implicit bias with either explicit attitudes or behaviors, sometimes there's measurement error in the behaviors or the explicit attitudes. We saw an example of the former from the paper in 2001. Some examples of the latter include using different survey instruments to try and capture explicit racial attitudes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you three survey items from different surveys claiming to either measure racial attitudes or something related to racial attitudes. For each of these items, the assessment is essentially how much do you agree or disagree with the following statements. So item one is, quote, discrimination against blacks is no longer a problem in the United States. Item two, if you want to make accurate predictions, you should use information about a person's ethnic group when deciding if they will perform well. Item three, there is a real danger that too much emphasis on cultural diversity will tear the United States apart. So, it's not that any of these questions is unfair, but the issue is, to what extent do they measure the same explicit racial attitude? So, for item one, again, that is, quote, discrimination against blacks is no longer a problem in the United States. That might assess some racial attitude of an individual, but it also might reflect their assessment of the civic and structural progress the United States has made in terms of equalizing the footing for people of all races. The second item, quote, if you want to make accurate predictions, you should use information about a person's ethnic group when deciding if they will perform well, is probably more in line with what we would commonly think of as a racist attitude, or at least a propensity to stereotype. The final example, quote, there is a real danger that too much emphasis on cultural diversity will tear the United States apart, that might reflect concerns for assimilation, not any sort of racist attitudes or any sort of desire to discriminate against other people. So, when you have measurement instruments like this, in this case for the explicit attitudes, what you can see is that those can be contaminated with measurement error too, because when you aggregate these data from different surveys, what you're hoping to do is provide a clearer resolution for the explicit attitude. But because they might be measuring different things, you're likely not capturing a single coherent construct. Now, if someone wants to make the case that all of the items from all of these surveys actually reflect a singular underlying construct, that's a conversation for a different time. Empirically, the correlation between these different surveys is less than 50%, and sometimes well below 50%. So that hardly reflects a single canonical concept. Now, that aside for measurement error is important because it will help us appreciate some of the validity issues endemic to the IAT. Again, we can think about validity as the degree to which measures correspond to the phenomenon of interest. There are several other aspects and types of validity, and we'll mention a few of those, but for now, that's sufficient. The first type of validity we'll discuss is factorial validity. There are two dimensions to this type of validity, 
and what they amount to in layman's terms are, first, the extent to which a measure captures what it's supposed to, so the extent to which the implicit association test captures implicit attitudes or implicit biases. The second is that it does not capture things it's not supposed to, for example, explicit attitudes. Well, we just mentioned earlier that 20% of the variance in IAT scores seems to be actually associated with implicit attitudes. So that is kind of a mark against this measure on the first account. Secondly, it's important to note that while the early results from implicit association test research indicated that they were actually measuring something distinct from explicit attitudes, which would be important for this type of research because if you're going to justify interventions on the basis of implicit attitudes, it should be that they are distinct from explicit attitudes. Otherwise, you don't have to worry or make any claims about kind of unconscious or automatically processed beliefs. You can just measure how they feel about things by asking them. Even though there have been some improvements to the algorithm that calculates one's so-called implicit bias, Further analysis paint a less rosy picture for the ability to distinguish between implicit and explicit attitudes. When measurement error is accounted for and the new algorithms are used, the correlation between implicit and explicit attitudes can be north of 85%, which undermines claims that the IAT captures implicit attitudes as distinct from explicit attitudes of an individual. Okay, so we have established that there are some issues with the factorial validity of the IAT. However, some still claim that there are causal and generalizable findings that the IAT research produces. So let's take those two apart a little bit. First, on the issue of causality, this is something that scientists refer to as internal validity, the degree to which causal relationships are supported by the research. Thus, if one claims that implicit bias corresponds with some sort of prejudicial behavior, the research results had better conform to that. Well, again, we refer back to the 2001 study that indicates that was not the case. In fact, it was the opposite. But that single example is actually kind of indicative of the state of most IAT research. It's not that it's all shoddy or all bad. It's that there are conflicting and unresolved findings that indicate high scores on the IAT may be associated with pro or anti-black or white bias, or perhaps no bias at all. More complicated still, it's not quite clear what a score of zero actually means on the IAT. The reason is, one would assume that a score of zero means that there's no bias in any direction. However, if you look at the results and how they correspond to behavior, a score of zero seems to indicate an actual anti-in-group bias. What this means statistically is that the average behaviorally neutral person has an anti-outgroup bias score on the IAT. Okay, so let's look at some additional threats to the internal validity. That's the causal claims of this type of research. One is that if you have a relatively homogenous group of people, but a few people who are older in your sample, what will happen is that the scores of those older people, just due to slower processing speeds, again, we're talking about milliseconds here, they will pull the results, they'll bias the results so that it looks like there's a general effect when really they're just statistical outliers biasing your interpretation. So once those are controlled for, the extent of anti-outgroup bias is reduced. Now recall that the original authors made some improvements to their initial algorithm. These improvements reduce the influence of age-related outliers, and these age differences can be controlled for statistically, but they do represent potential and past threats that undermine some of the results in implicit bias research. 
Next, there's the issue of novelty or familiarity, and this will come up again later on. But what's been shown is that the more novel the stimuli are, meaning if someone is unfamiliar with a person who is white or a person who is black, the slower their response speed will be, and the more it will look like they have a bias against that person. But it's not a bias. It's a novelty effect. They're just unfamiliar with what they've encountered. And this doesn't have to be, obviously, in some sort of absolute sense. It could be that people just come from a background where everyone looks like them. Certainly, in the very first IAT study, there was an artifact that indicated that this might be true. They looked at Japanese and Korean subjects and found that there was an anti-outgroup bias. However, when the researchers came back and looked at how much exposure these subjects had to cultures other than their own and accounted for that, this anti-outgroup bias diminished to zero. That is to say, it appears it did not exist. And or, perhaps, that exposure to cultures other than your own can attenuate this bias completely. So those are some of the internal validity issues with certain IAT research. Let's now talk about external validity. This is the extent to which findings can be generalized beyond a specific study of interest. So, for example, to the population in the real world. Well, the first thing to note is that if there are actually no causal relationships or they're very weak, then there's not much to generalize. However, putting that aside for a moment, some issues with external validity in certain IAT research is that the experimental prompts can be artificial, such as requesting that a subject evaluate different potential employment candidates and give preference to someone who is of a certain race because that's the way it has always been done in the company. It is highly unlikely that the subject or anyone would encounter that in the real world. Thus, it's an artificial environment that does not reflect the context to which the research is trying to generalize. Next, Though the IAT presents people of different races on a computer screen, it provides no additional information about the individuals that they're supposed to represent. This is also highly unlike most situations that people encounter, where they have at least some specific information about the individuals with whom they will be interacting. Thus, the IAT reflects something that is exclusively about a person for whom you have no additional information. Now, others might argue that a person's race or ethnic status is individual-level information, and therefore, there are generalizable findings that can be derived from implicit association test results. My response to this is, what do the data tell us? What is the empirical standing? We talked about issues with factorial and internal validity, but let's take a look at a final form of validity, and that's predictive validity, which is exactly what it sounds like. The ability of a measure to predict something in the future. In this case, the implicit association test, to predict some sort of prejudicial or biased behavior. We hinted at this earlier with that 20% figure, meaning that the extent to which the IAT captures actual implicit racist attitudes is about 20% of that measure. Combining this result and those from the meta-analysis series that we talked about earlier, we find that the upper limit on the IAT's ability to predict behavior is 4 to 5%, something like that. However, the actual picture is more bleak than that because the original meta-analysis that produced that estimate included only certain types of results. And unfortunately, that's actually not very good for giving us an accurate, holistic assessment of the state of the evidence. In contrast, the second meta-analysis in this multi-paper series, again available in this episode's artifact, took a more comprehensive and, in my opinion, honest approach for their inclusion criteria. They included null results that were not included in the first meta-analysis. A null result essentially indicates that you have not reached a certain level of statistical confidence in your results 
to support your hypothesis. The original meta-analysis failed to include some of these. The second meta-analysis was also more comprehensive in including results that were both pro and anti-black, as well as pro and anti-white. They also did this for the ethnic versions of the IAT. So what were the results when they analyzed their data? Well, that 4 to 5% number fell to 1 to 2%. So what we're seeing is, okay, well, at best, it seems that one's IAT results can predict 1 to 2% of their behavior. And yet the picture is still more bleak because this second group of authors also broke down the different types of behavior that were studied. Whereas the first group kind of aggregated the behavior into a single category, this second group broke these behaviors apart into things such as how people perceive others, how they behave towards others in terms of their facial expressions, in terms of allowing them time to speak, that kind of thing. And they also included a category called brain activity. So this is something like an fMRI scan of someone's brain as they're taking the IAT. Now, I would argue that brain scans are not actually behaviors and that to the extent someone has a neurological impulse that does not actually manifest in real-world behavior, why do we care? But what they found was that far and away, the strongest correlation between IAT results and behaviors, quote-unquote, was for the category called brain activity. Here, the IAT was able to explain roughly 20% of the variance in behavior, i.e. the brain activity, whereas for the other categories, the IAT was able to explain between 0 and roughly 2% of the behavior. So, now that you're familiar with a rough history of the IAT and some of its most credible critiques, it may be unsurprising to you to hear that there's some controversy about so-called implicit bias trainings or seminars. The first thing to say is that the original authors are typically quite honest about the limitations of the results. If you're unfamiliar with Project Implicit, which is the major website through which the public is able to access these tests, I would encourage you to go visit their homepage. There's an important disclaimer on the front. I have it highlighted in this episode's artifact as well. It's also noteworthy that these same people offer quote-unquote implicit bias trainings or seminars, typically for a fee, and I don't begrudge them that. It's their quote-unquote expertise. However, the question remains, are these interventions worth the financial and opportunity costs associated with them? Well, let's take a look at a couple examples. From 2018 to 2020, the NYPD spent $5.5 million for its officers to undergo so-called implicit bias training. The results of the training indicated that IAT scores improved, meaning that the degree to which there was some sort of outgroup bias was reduced. However, when they looked at whether policing behaviors had changed, they found no influence of the training. Now, one might claim, as often these consultants do, that there just need to be more or deeper trainings, and the fact that they get a fee for that is just beside the point, I'm sure. Alternatively, given what we know about the IAT's ability to reliably and validly assess implicit racial biases, the entire premise that justifies these trainings should be reconsidered. And here I will put a caveat that certainly all of these trainings are not the same, and they're conducted by people with different levels of rigor in their background to actually know about the material they're delivering. I do believe that many of these people operating this space are operating from a point of good faith. However, that should not preclude us from pursuing what is true, especially if we actually want to improve racial interactions between people. This goes to my next point. 
Several researchers and proponents of the IAT have commented that these type of trainings have the potential to create backfire or backlash effects, which is somewhat unsurprising, especially if they promote negative self-assessments or re-racialize work or intergroup dynamics. Unsurprisingly, people of all backgrounds could be expected to respond negatively to such trainings and might disengage from otherwise amicable coworkers or situations. However, perhaps there is a small group of people in the workplace for which these tests and these type of trainings provide them moral license to admonish others and claim false virtue. For those of us interested in the truth and getting along productively in a multicultural society, there are better options. Alas, perhaps your company or school still seeks out these trainings. Well, I'll let the words of Mazarin Banaji, one of the founders and pioneers in this area, hang over the close of this conversation. She does not think these types of trainings should be A, mandatory, and she's firmly against compulsory sharing of personal data with respect to IAT results, especially in what she calls selection contexts. Now, I don't have any extra insight what she means there, but I suspect that means in cases such as hiring, firing, or promotions. Provided the information we've talked about previously, it's somewhat unsurprising that many view this test as inadequate for making individual assessments about people. Now, before I close, I want to talk about three final points very briefly. The first is that all of science suffers from what is called a positive publication bias. This means that for a lot of the results we observe, there's an inflated expectation about the causal relationship. It could be that the causal relationship is not as strong or that it doesn't exist. And the reason this manifests is because professors generally build their careers by getting research published. That typically happens in academic journals, and these journals favor results that are positive, not null. Recall that null means your hypotheses didn't pan out. Positive results indicate the opposite. So while evaluating an individual level paper, it is certainly more impressive if a scientist's hypotheses are supported. It is also the case that when at scale, this creates a perverse incentive, such that when looking at the landscape of the research as a whole, we get an inflated expectation about what the actual state of the evidence is. To be sure, some fields are better because they have higher standards than others, but this is generally the case. So, for whatever you think of the results I've presented to you so far, just know that they are likely upwardly biased. The second point before we close is you might hear people claim that implicit bias has been shown to manifest in children as young as three. Rather than taking a social psychological lens to this problem, I would encourage you to take an evolutionary lens. Think about what we talked about with familiarity and novelty earlier. Might it be the case that a toddler has a preference, an entirely justified preference, for those that look like them because that's the people who have taken care of that child? And since these roles are anything but trivial in that child's life, they have a positive disposition towards people who look like them because their parents look like them. It is my perspective that such claims should not be interpreted as some cultural thumbprint of racism or some implicit bias harbored by toddlers. Lastly, some may push back that I'm not an expert in this field. And it's true. I have not published research on implicit bias, and generally I'm uninterested in social psychology as being part of my foundational skill set. Though there are some incredible social psychologists, the field itself is having a bit of a crisis at the moment. However, to counter the claim that I have no expertise to opine on this issue, I would say two things. One, this research is in the public purview, and I'm part of the public, so I, like anyone else, have a right to opine on this. 
And two, I think I've been fairly rigorous in assessing this, and my quantitative background qualifies me to be reasonably credible on this issue. People can quibble over specific studies I've selected, that's fine, and I'd be open to that criticism. But it would be entirely inaccurate to say that I have not generally reflected the actual statistical and scientific standing of this stream of research. Interestingly, when others have produced either popular press pieces or books on this issue, they've been discouraged from doing so or talked down to by some of the founders in this field. I won't name specific names here, but there is information in the episode artifact. Suffice to say, one expert discouraged a quartz journalist from writing an article claiming that debates about the scientific merits of the implicit association test are for academic rather than general audiences. I hope you have as much disdain for such a statement as I. A second IAT pioneer, in correspondence with someone writing for The Cut, said that she really only had time to consider, quote, real criticisms from people who are experts, people who do original work. Given what you know about the state of this general research stream, I will ask you to think about the implications of that statement for a second. If researchers interested in meritorious and rigorous scholarship were to, over time, divest from IAT research, then people not interested in such pursuits or interested in the IAT for other motivations will be the ones remaining in the field. And while this shell game will probably be allowed to persist in academia due to incentive structures that we'll talk about in a later episode, it does not imbue one with confidence that the general credibility of the scholarship done will be improved. The same researcher who made that claim had the temerity to insinuate that people who are, quote, scared of IAT results have regressive views on social equality between the races. Hmm. She went on to mischaracterize her critics as a, quote, small group of aggrieved individuals, claiming they're pathologically focused on race. To be clear, the critics I've referenced here have produced results worthy of contention. Therefore, in my view, that statement by that author is entirely inappropriate and brings to mind the observation from the French philosopher Francois de la Rochefoucauld that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And on that upbeat note, we'll close out today's episode. I want to thank you so much for joining me. This is the first episode, as you know. I hope it was informative or at least interesting, and I hope to see you next time. Please feel free to reach out to myself or any of our other podcast hosts on our social media profiles. Until next time, stay honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely. From Is to Ought is a Freedomcast Network production.